Before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. And I'm Jeanne Malekis-Smith, a Senior Associate with the Strategic Technologies Program at CSIS and a professor in the Department of Systems Engineering at West Point. As a disclaimer, the views presented here are my own and do not represent those of the United States Government, Defense Department, West Point, or CSIS. As y'all know, Lindsay has left CSIS to pursue emerging technology policy from within the government, but I am so excited to have an incredible guest co-host with me today. Jana is just a fountain of knowledge and an incredible scholar. She also knows way more about 5G than I do. Anyway, I'm excited to share this discussion with you guys. I hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Tech Unmanned. I am so excited for this conversation we are about to have. We have two fantastic experts here to talk about everything 5G. First is Milo Medin. He is the Vice President of Wireless Services for Alphabet. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. and. We have Jaysha Ray joining us. She is the Associate Administrator for International Affairs at the Department of Commerce's National Telecommunications and Information Administration. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to work with CSIS. Well, thank you both. And of course, we have our guest co-host with us today. Jana, thank you for joining me and lending your expertise to this discussion. I'm really hoping we can start with the framing of the issue. I feel like 5G is kind of everywhere. I think my phone actually says it's on 5G. I'm not sure if that's true. I definitely see commercials saying that I should upgrade or switch my phone. Milo, can you give us a brief overview about what all this messaging and marketing is, maybe how it's different from 4G, and really what all this fuss is about? Sure, I'd be glad to. 5G is technically a set of standards releases that come out of an organization called 3GPP. And so LTE uh, was release 14, and then 5G is sort of release 15 and 16. There are three main differences in 5G from 4G. One is how much spectrum, that's radio frequency spectrum, a device can actually use. So if you think of it just general in general terms, the wider the channels, like the wider the, the road, the more traffic can go through it, faster that traffic can flow. So your peak speeds are basically driven by how wide that spectrum channel can be. In LTE, we can use a maximum of 100 megahertz. In 5G, we can go to 500 megahertz. Now, that only helps you if you've got more spectrum to use, right? If you put 5G signals on the same spectrum that you use 4G for, you might get maybe 20% improvement or something like that. You're not going to really seriously notice it. it. The speed benefit comes with Y channels. The second thing is that the 5G specs allow much more fine-grained control of data traffic flowing over the radios. So in 4G, you can sort of preserve voice traffic, but in 5G, you could actually make some set of traffic 
be lower latency. It's sort of like a guaranteed, you know, toll road lane that uh, everybody else could be in traffic, but you're you're flowing on on your own special road. Now that takes capacity away from the whole, so it's not free. But you could slow things down and you can speed things up on a very fine grained basis. And the third thing that 5G is supposed to be able to do is allow do you use the network for both fixed use, like as an alternative to a cable modem, uh, as well as mobile. And this takes advantage of the fact that, you know, when people are home, the traffic's going through their Wi-Fi network at home from their house over a cable connection, but could be over a 5G link. And then when you leave the home, everybody starts talking to your mobiles. And so the idea is you, you can use radio frequency spectrum and flex it between one use or the other. We don't see a whole lot of that uh, as the focus right now, but those are the three sort of main technical differences. And the speed is really driven by how much spectrum that you're putting into service. And I'll just add to that, if that's okay, that the reason 5G has just been such a strong priority for the Biden administration is that we view it will be a primary driver of our nation's prosperity and security in the 21st century. And just truly groundbreaking, as Milo was describing, but also I know we'll get to this later, there's all the more risk. So some scholars have classified our our present times as living in an era of strategic competition. And with the race, which is a, a granted an overused term to describe competition in this sphere, but the race to develop emerging technology such as quantum, biotech, artificial intelligence, and and 5G, the focal point of our discussion today, I'm curious if you could unpack for us, what does the international landscape look like when it comes to the competition for developing and deploying 5G technology? Sure, I'm happy to. And competition is really a key question here because we are really concerned that there is currently limited competition in the telecommunications infrastructure market, which can reduce supply chain resilience and contribute to higher prices for operators and consumers in the long run. What we're talking about here is just a handful of companies, one of which is Huawei, that are the suppliers currently. And so as a result, the United States government is fully supportive of industry's development of open and interoperable networks, like radio ac- open radio access networks or open RAN. But we also do value the importance of maintaining the full suite of solutions offered by the incumbent trusted vendors. Now, developing these open networks can potentially increase competition and provide network operators with additional options in purchasing equipment and services from a more diverse range of trusted vendors. But turning to your question, while the global environment naturally presents questions of strategic competition, we also believe it presents an opportunity to work with international partners in support of this affirmative vision of open, interoperable, diverse, and secure telecommunications networks that reflect democratic values. And so a key goal of our own efforts on vendor diversity is to foster additional competition in the market, but we want to do so in collaboration with our international partners. So for example, you may have seen the recent US summits with Japan and Korea, where there was shared recognition of the importance of secure 5G networks along with joint commitments to advance innovative approaches like Open RAN. And NTIA and other US agencies are also collaborating with like-minded governments on policy options to advance the development and deployment of open and interoperable 5G networks as a means to foster innovation, spur competition, and expand the 5G supply chain. 
So international cooperation will then be critical to ensuring that such networks can reach their full potential. But put simply, we can't go it alone. 5G infrastructure markets, supply chains, and the factors that have driven their consolidation are global. So too must the response by governments be if we hope to drive sustainable progress. But fortunately, countries like Japan and the UK have already invested in research labs and test beds and policy tools to promote open architecture networks. And it has also been encouraging to see strong partnerships already forming in this area between US firms and global counterparts. We truly welcome this along with the emergence of trusted market entrants and telecom innovators from like-minded countries. So numerous firms from Europe, Asia, and the Americas are now developing new hardware and software solutions that can increase vendor diversity, including through open RAN approaches. And we really encourage this innovation. And we recently highlighted this in our response to the FCC's recent notice of inquiry on open RAN. So that's the Federal Communication Commission's NOI, which you can find on the NTIA website. And this just shows that only through a multinational base of trusted vendors are we likely to have the capacity to meaningfully service U.S. and global markets. Can I just ask a quick follow-up because I'm you know, not really deep in this space. What is open RAN? The current approach are proprietary networks where it's one network providing the whole stack of services and open RAN allows a range of companies to contribute to a 5G network by disaggregating the components through open interfaces. So it's, it's allowing a range of companies to collaborate to build out a 5G network with an open approach. If I could add, uh, jump on that, I think at the core, and by the way, I was uh, one of the co-authors of the Defense Innovation Board uh, report on uh, 5G, Risks and Opportunities, which came out in uh, April of 2019. One of the things that uh, Jess is talking about sort of indirectly is there's this concern that Chinese vendors may put code in their equipment that would either allow interception of traffic or diverting traffic in ways that could be taken advantage of by foreign governments, or that the network could go down in a crisis where uh, it got some sort of signal and and would do that. That's part of the concern of the 5G ecosystem in terms of vendors. And Open RAN is trying to bring more comp- competition into that space. Uh, and that's why there's been this focus on Open RAN. But you're just to go back, your question was really about deployment and and things. And you know, one of the things we flagged in our report was it's really not about the network. It's about the set of services that ride on top of that. Uh, The U.S. is a leader today in mobile services because partly we deployed LTE so aggressively in the 2008-2009 timeframe. And so when the networks in the U.S. got faster, companies like Google and Apple and Twitter and Netflix and everybody started building services that took advantage of that increased bandwidth. If China deploys those networks first, And Chinese companies, which today are four out of the top 10 internet companies by revenue, if they build new services, things that wouldn't work on conventional LTE networks, and then deployed them across China and then exported them globally, well, now instead of Apple holding your data or Twitter holding your data or Amazon holding your data, it's now residing in Chinese systems in mainland China, that 
makes a lot of folks nervous, not just about potential civil military fusion, where the government could get access to that data, but also what happens when you can use that data to train new machine learning models and other sets of of things that uh, have both economic and security concerns. So I think part of the other issue is not just the open RAN as a spec from an equipment perspective. You know, most of the carriers today outsource their operations, uh, maintenance, et cetera, to the vendors that provide that hardware. And so what that means is you've got people from Huawei or Ericsson who are in your network configuring security parameters and things for lawful intercept and a whole set of other configurations. And that's true no matter what the vendor is. So it's not just the code that's running in the base station. It's about who's maintaining that base station, who's got the keys to sort of update its software and change it around and get access to systems. And that, I think, is another concern regardless of whether you've got Huawei as a vendor or somebody else. Yeah, and we absolutely cover the issue of security in our notice of inquiry response. So we'd really encourage folks to take a look at that. A common analogy that we hear from industry is it's a lot easier to see the cockroaches when the lights are on. And so, but there is a lot of work still to be done on the security front. But that said, we, U.S. government is strongly promoting these open architectures to really spur competition in the market that is so urgently needed. That's a great point. Yes, sunlight is the best disinfectant. If I could go back to two points, um, one for our listeners that aren't quite familiar with the design requirement terms of an open and interoperable system, could you please elaborate on on what those mean? And also, uh, we touched upon the importance that no state can go it alone in this sphere and transparency what are we doing to help promote supply chain trust uh, with our partners in engaging in multilateral activities? So I'm happy to just briefly describe when you're talking about open and interoperable networks, it is a new approach, relatively new, that has been really driven and led by industry. And it's looking at a new way of designing a 5G network where you have open interfaces and a range of vendors that can contribute to what we call the stack rather than the current approach, which is proprietary, tends to be more expensive where it's one company designing the full network. This allows companies to collaborate to build out a network. And then in terms of international cooperation on building trust, I mean, in my office is the Office of International Affairs. We talk to our international counterparts every day about the importance of 5G security and how citizens need to be able to trust that 5G equipment and software will not introduce risks that threaten national security, privacy, or human rights. And a key part of this is how do we create additional trusted suppliers in the market? A lot of governments around the world are looking at the affordability piece of this. And so how do we get more affordable, but also trusted suppliers in the market. And we simply cannot afford a situation where we or the countries we communicate with become dependent on untrustworthy suppliers based outside of the free and democratic world. And so we're in our early days of cooperation here. Our first key step has been information sharing and talking about all the various efforts underway by the U.S. government and industry to promote open and interoperable networks. And so we're collaborating closely with governments there. We've seen a lot of enthusiasm around the world here, and we look forward to continuing this important conversation. 
So it seems like there are a lot of a lot of new or just starting an early initial phase kind of collaboration approaches, this open architecture type model, which is really interesting to hear about because we just we talked a bit about a similar theory for on-orbit servicing, assembly, and manufacturing in a previous episode, developing open standards that that everyone can adhere to so you can build different services into the, the architecture. Is the technology outpacing the policy? Like how mature is 5G or are we running along the same kind of train tracks? Well, I, I would say 5G in the U.S., so far has been really about deploying 5G in old 4G spectrum. So part of the reason why your 5G light might be lit on your phone, but you're not really seeing any speed improvement is because the 5G has been put on existing spectrum. Now, T-Mobile has been deploying 5G in the two and a half gigahertz band, and that there's a lot more spectrum up there. Uh, but the radius of the cell site gets smaller as your frequency goes up. And so what happens is you need a lot more base stations, a lot more infrastructure, a lot more towers to cover off areas with these higher frequencies that can deliver this kind of performance. One of the things we called out in our report in 2019 was using the C-band, uh, part of the satellite spectrum, spectrum that's designated for space-to-ground use for commercial purposes for 5G mobile services. And the FCC conducted an auction and assigned a bunch of spectrum to ATT, Verizon, and T-Mobile. But it takes some time before that spectrum will be available. And then you've got to deploy a lot of base stations. You know, I think one of the things that's not always uh, understood is there is one network, and that's the wired network. It comes with fiber. The wireless is just a little bit of piece off the very end. And so what we have is, as you're deploying spectrum in, in higher frequencies like C-band or two and a half gigahertz or even worse in millimeter wave, you need a lot more base stations to cover the same amount of area. And that also leads to a number of concerns about, are these going to be deployed everywhere? Like in rural areas, you'd have to deploy a lot more base stations to provide equivalent speed and coverage. Do carriers build in sort of less affluent parts of town? So... There are a number of concerns about digital divide, et cetera, that come about because of this increased need for infrastructure and a lot of fiber to be deployed to connect all those higher frequency base stations together. And in terms of policies and strategies outpacing the technology, I'll just note that in 2020, Congress passed the Secure 5G and Beyond Act, which tasked the formulation of both a strategy and an implementation plan for 5G. And you can actually find the National Strategy to Secure 5G Implementation Plan on the NTIA website. And my agency is working hand-in-hand -hand with the White House and a range of departments and agencies to execute this comprehensive plan, which I'll also note took into account the many comments we received from our stakeholders representing various interests and aspects of the telecoms ecosystem. And as I mentioned earlier, the Development and deployment of open and interoperable architectures can and should be industry-led. But that said, there is a role for governments to help promote open networks and foster the conditions for their successful deployment and growth. And the same can be said about 5G and ensuring 5G security. And NTIA is advancing this effort in several ways. So on the technical side, 
we have a lab called the Institute for Telecommunication Sciences, which is working to investigate ways to accelerate the research, development, and deployment of open interface, standards-based, and interoperable 5G networks across the country. And as I mentioned earlier, we're driving a range of activities with like-minded countries and the private sector. And we're also examining whether we can work with our international partners to develop principles on what governments can do to promote open networks. So in 2019, there was a fantastic event called the Prague 5G Security Conference, where almost 30 governments came together to develop principles on 5G security. And would encourage folks to take a look at that document online as well. But we see an opportunity to build on these principles of the role of governments for this whole concept of 5G vendor diversity and develop principles on the role of government and how we can promote this effort. That's a great segue to now uh, discussing the national security concerns here. You had mentioned the new uh, policy emphasis by the Biden administration on uh, promoting competition in the American economy. And here in this particular space, the importance of prioritizing the standard setting process. And I wonder if you could explain to our listeners the importance of competition in the markets for 5G equipment and what other concerns the U.S. government has identified here in relation to 5G development and deployment. Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. And standards development, by the way, is a top administration priority. It's a key focus in our national strategy to secure 5G implementation plan, where we're looking at how to ensure U.S. leadership in standards development. My agency actually is very involved in the International Telecommunication Union, which has a whole standardization sector. And so we focus on this issue quite a bit along with the 5G standards development in 3GPP. And so in terms of priorities and concerns related to 5G, I think Milo covered some of the security concerns very well. And it just goes back to needing to be able to trust that your 5G equipment and software will not introduce risks that threaten national security, privacy, or human rights. And this is why we are so focused now on this competition piece to ensure that there are a range, a wide variety of trusted suppliers in the 5G market so that governments around the world have choice when they're looking at who to build out their networks. Yeah, and I would just add on the deployment side, right? Part of the issue here is, it's not just the equipment, right? But going from 3G to 4G, most of that transition happened on existing towers. You didn't have to build very many new towers. That's not the case for going from 4G to 5G and going, especially eventually going from 5G to 6G as the frequencies keep getting up. And so it goes back to this issue about how much fiber do you have? fiber optic networks and deployment of those resources. It's interesting in last data I saw in, in first quarter of 2021, China had 477 million fiber to the home customers. The entire rest of the world combined is about 120 million. So they have invested in deploying fiber deep into their networks. They have all modern networks. Their government owns the uh, their carriers. And so all the money that we keep sending China is being used to build out advanced uh, infrastructure in, in China. And once you've got the fiber deep, then adding new base stations on the end of it to make the wireless networks be an order of magnitude faster becomes much easier. 
and much more pervasive throughout their country. And they're on a tear in terms of deploying that. So the previous episode was on electronic warfare. And I just want to ask, does 5G, is it more susceptible? Are there more points of entry with all of this infrastructure we need to build? You know, what, from a threat perspective, you know, what is the military worried about? Say, just from an engineering perspective, remember when I said one of the capabilities of 5G is to have much finer grain control of traffic? That requires applications on your phone to communicate with the network in new ways. Because I said, I want to have a, I want a signal, I want to have some new low latency application. That requires a level of communication and interaction with the network that was not present in 4G networks. And if that code base is insecure, has bugs, et cetera, then it could lead to problems where those networks could be taken down or have challenge with them. Basically, what we call in security, the attack surface is much, much broader in 5G than 4G. So the same equivalent network nodes in 4G, we're not talking to users. That's not true in, in 5G. So that's one of the concerns about that. There are other things uh, that the military cares about. There's a classified version of the study we did that's much more interesting. So if, if you're listening to this and you want to hear more about this particular topic, I would say go look at the classified version. You had mentioned that the attack surface is significantly larger with 5G. I wonder, is that also the case for 6G? And for our listeners that aren't as familiar with 6G, 6G, could you talk about what that is? How far away are we from achieving that milestone? What are your thoughts? Well, I think on 6G, there's, again, that's the next set of standards that are being worked on after 5G and using even higher frequencies, et cetera. One of the bigger challenges that I think has been raised by a, an effort that's being pushed through the ITU is to actually replace the IP protocol uh, with a new protocol uh, called new IP and has a number of characteristics that would break some of the fundamental qualities of the existing internet. For example, that two devices can talk to each other without some intermediary in the middle giving permission for a new service to flow. You don't have to authenticate everybody on the network to a common source. And so that is part of the effort that is being cha uh, championed by some Chinese companies and, and others, which would have, I think, a lot of fundamental privacy issues, as well as changing the ability for innovation to happen on the internet without the phone company or the carrier expressly allowing it. And that's a really problematic situation. Many of us who work in internet standards are working to try and blunt that, but it is, uh, it is not something being done necessarily in 3GPP. I think it's being pushed in the ITU, but Jason could probably talk more about that than I can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is something we are laser focused on. It really sheds light on the need for U.S. leadership and standards bodies to ensure we have the right participation there. And in this industry-led um, environment, U.S. support is so critical. And what we're also finding is we can't do it alone as the U.S. We need to work in conjunction with our international partners. So we're examining now how can we divide and conquer and ensure that we're all aligned when we're approaching these standards organizations and have the best strategic participation there. 
I wonder, are you seeing any impact on the global chip shortage uh, impacting communication industry with respect to the 5G rollout? Any trends that you've observed in, in that area? Yeah, I mean, the chip shortage is a whole nother topic I'm sure you've done a, a set of podcasts on. I think you're seeing it affect uh, availability of certain kinds of parts which can reduce the flow of base station equipment so it can slow down deployment. Here in the U.S., we really are not deploying 5G as aggressively as you find in in some other countries on this smaller cell basis. And so there are some challenges, but I I have not heard that it's been a material impact, at least uh, to date. You know, as experts in this field, what are you really watching? What are the next steps that our audience should be paying attention for? Whether that is progress and their, you know, cell phones actually communicating through 5G versus it just telling me it is. Infrastructure, if they see a new tower going up next door, or, you know, is it these broader international agreements and policies? And then I guess or those are all positives, I think, but, you know, or are there warning signs or red flags that would mean that, you know, we're kind of going off the rails? So, I mean, we are just so focused on 5G now, as I mentioned, across the administration, the full interagency. And that's because it will truly change the way that we operate here in the United States. It will touch every aspect of our lives. But as we've talked about on the podcast so far, with this great opportunity comes many risks. And so we have a lot of key chances now to really inform our partners internationally as well as in the US about these risks. And so something that we're doing at NTIA is something called the Communication Supply Chain Risk Information Partnership or C-Script. And that's a program where we're sharing supply chain security risk information with trusted communications providers and suppliers. And we're particularly focused on the small and rural communication providers and suppliers, and just really trying to improve their access to information about risks and to key elements in their supply chain. And so it's a very exciting opportunity. I'm very excited about the promise of open architectures, bringing in those new suppliers into the market. And then of course, 6G, which we touched upon. It is the future. We need to start thinking now. It's never too soon. We, I know that other governments around the world are thinking about it too. And so we need to be right along with them. In addition uh, to that, I would say, you know, the big issue is deployment and getting networks built because it's really about the services. It's really not about the network itself. It's really about the new sets of services that ride on top of it. Things that are enabled by having networks where you've got mobile service at a gigabit plus and lower latency that enables you to do things like, for example, having robots that just become sensors and their their intelligence all sits in the cloud. They don't have to have all that smarts at the edge. Those are the kind of things that I think are really important. We're not going to get applications built to take advantage of the networks unless those networks are deployed. And, you know, the government has done a reasonable job, I think, of getting spectrum into the market. But, you know, for example, that C-band spectrum netted something on the order of $90 billion of money going into the federal treasury. That money could have been used to actually build out networks. And so now you've got carriers who are challenged with a lot of debt. And the question is, are they going to take the open RAN stuff and actually build out with it? Or is that going to be used by other countries 
And if we don't have that kind of high speed infrastructure, then the issue is where does the next decades new apps and services, the things that you depend on on your phone that caused you to buy a new iPhone or buy a new device or uh, upgrade your service, if that if those are not developed in the United States, but are developed in China and the rest of the world follows them, then I think you've got a real problem, not just from a security perspective, from a, but from an economic perspective. And so that really boils down to deployment. And uh, that's the thing I would be watching for. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. I think this discussion really highlighted on a lot of trends that we've seen throughout the other episodes on open architectures, the fact that these technologies are really just enabling others and the you know possibilities are endless. Well, Jana, I feel like I've just learned so much. Jaisha and Milo were incredible experts who really dove in deep on a lot of these granular issues with 5G. And now I feel kind of up to speed on what 5G is, its implementation, the international challenges, the challenges with deployment, the opportunities seem endless with all the apps and and technologies that it could enable. And then there's even more, there's 6G. It's just incredible the possibility that's here. Uh, What was your big takeaway though? I agree. What stood out to me is the way in which they described 5G as being sort of the lifeblood to support the the growth and expansion of the internet of things, taking our design of cities in a completely new uh, direction with smart cities and also enabling the advancement of autonomous vehicles, medical devices, industry equipment, and cloud computing as well. And it was striking to to consider that and then also hear about the next generation of wireless technology. We're here, we developed 5G technology. We've been deploying it since 2019 in the United States and now looking ahead to the future of what, what is on the horizon with 6G technology. My program, the Strategic Technologies Program, had an event on this topic. Uh, for those of you listening that are interested in learning more about 6G network standards and requirements in this area, I recommend catching that virtual discussion. But it was very striking to hear how 6G will be a new area that we're pushing into developing a new frontier. And in the National Defense Authorization Act for 2021, we see the government making strides to help support the development of future generations of wireless technology. For example, the Department of Congress enabling a program which would provide investment incentives for semiconductor fabrication, as well as research and development to help secure the supply chain domestically. So we see a great emphasis placed on securing the supply chain from threats and trying to ensure that we can mitigate risks and vulnerabilities going forward in this area. Well, I think we're going to have a lot of people commenting about how uh, semiconductors and microelectronics in the supply chain are really their own podcast episode. So shout out for maybe a season two here, but I think we're really just scratching the surface with 5G. And for me, what stood out so much was that it's not about 5G. I think Milo really emphasized this. It's really about the opportunities and applications of using this technology to create others, 
Like Netflix would not be around. We would not have survived the pandemic <laughs> if we hadn't had the infrastructure and capability we have with uh, 4G and 5G and 6G have the potential for equal, if not more, kind of revolutionary disruptive technology. I think I was also surprised, maybe just because I don't feel like I have been greatly impacted by 5G just yet, of how far along we are with thinking about 6G, that there are already policies and plans in place for enabling the next stage when we haven't even gotten to 5G yet, which is fantastic, right? That's what you want because, you know, otherwise we'll get to 5G exhausted let's take a break no everyone else is going to be outpacing us the technologies are going to be outpacing us so we do really need to start planning that now yes and another theme that emerged from our discussion with jaysha and milo was the importance of working with trusted partners and multilateralism here Uh, especially jaysha's wonderful comments on this area and going forward it will be interesting to see how the biden administration helps prioritize this with pursuing new supply chain and cybersecurity initiatives with our partners, pursuing 5G diversification efforts. And on October 1st, the Biden administration posted the first in-person meeting with the Quad leaders at the White House to discuss 5G diversification efforts. So we see great emphasis being placed on supporting our outreach and partnership work with trusted partners to help secure the supply chain and address the semiconductor shortage. I do love how this episode really dived into international relations and partnerships, working with our allies to develop and implement 5G. It's not something I think we've really been able to dive too deep in on some other episodes and technologies. And this is just so cross-cutting and such an internationally charged issue. But I also feel like this must be a really challenging issue. I mean, you have the normal challenges that come with working with international partners, cybersecurity challenges with networks across countries and continents, but also what you just said about supply chains and the stress that they are really starting to feel now, but also just the envisioned kind of envisioned future of what we will need and will our current structure be able to handle it. There was also this point that Milo brought up, which really struck home to me about data and privacy, about who holds your data. And maybe we have normalized that the companies who currently hold our our private personal data adhere to democratic values and are in, you know, countries that have democratic values and with 5G, there's the real possibility that that kind of could shift to countries that don't have the same oversight on data and privacy and respect for personal freedoms, but instead uses that data. And we've seen this around the world actually already using data from social media to track people to just in in horrible kind of human rights abuse type of ways as well. I guess where I'm trying to go with this is that there is a concern about data privacy here with 5G and and who rolls out the 5G network and systems first, whether that is a democratic country with standards that we know and trust or a non-democratic country throws a lot more, you know, question into this. And I just wonder, Jana, what you have thought about uh, these issues and, and the threat that's here. 
it is definitely at the forefront of the Biden administration's policy planning uh, agenda to ensure that we are protecting the supply chain, securing it domestically. And I think that's that's why we see in legislation such as the National Defense Authorization Act language encouraging the federal government to create incentives for semiconductor fabrication domestically, helping promote research and development. 5G is a technological competition on many, many levels. And our program's report, which was produced in March 2021 on accelerating 5G in the United States, teases that out for readers in explaining that it's a contest between both economic models and also a contest between companies and groups vying for dominance in this sphere, but also between market-based and state-directed decision-making. And the United States has relied on the former, but we see China, going to your comment, Caitlin, on China's development in this area, focusing on the latter with more so state-directed decision-making here. And it's worth noting that the market-based model, alongside supportive governmental policies, like what we're seeing in the National Defense Authorization Act, has been the most innovative and productive, our report argues, and that point sometimes can get lost in the, let's say, general anxiety over China's competitive rise here. I think general anxiety is a really great way to phrase that. And I think we've seen this general anxiety in a lot of episodes where we've talked about these specific emerging technology issue areas. There's definitely a, a general anxiety for other technologies. And, and we've seen this again in the other episodes about what other countries are doing, allies and partners or competitors, and how that can influence strategic thinking within the United States and the way we choose which technologies to invest in or where we choose to employ those technologies or how we choose to use them. Was there anything else that really stood out to you in this discussion today? If I could go back to our discussion on 6G, I'd say although it's estimated that 6G won't be commercially available until 2030, now is the time that we see countries' leadership focusing on beyond 5G, how to maintain our competitive edge with wireless technology in the United States and other countries trying to emerge and become, become leaders in this area. It has significant geopolitical implications and we will be watching this area develop very, very closely and not only working with trusted partners here, but also the importance of ensuring that we are developing and cultivating talent in this area going forward with the engineering sciences and, and other uh, research and development initiatives in this area to ensure we maintain our competitive edge and all, we're also supporting multilateral efforts with partners securing the supply chain. Well, I am so glad you brought up talent management and investing in people. We actually have a STEM talent episode in a couple weeks, I think early November. So stay tuned for that, listeners, if you are interested in it. But Jana, just thank you so much for your expertise and insight for this episode. I am so grateful you agreed to be a co-host. And listeners, I have linked all of these things that Jana has talked about her program, the Strategic Technologies Program at CSIS, our colleagues, they have done incredible work on 5G. And so you can find a lot of their sources linked on my show page and show notes at csis.org slash techunmanned, but also just probably all over the CSIS website. 
as we wrap up, I just want to take time to thank our sponsors again, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Please go visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes, more about our guests, and everything else. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review this series wherever you listen to podcasts, and we will be back in two weeks. Thanks, y'all.